Each day, death corrodes what we call living, and life ceaselessly swallows our desire to embrace the void. The universe is a cruel, uncaring void. The key to being happy isn't to search for meaning, it's to just keep yourself busy with unimportant nonsense, and eventually, you'll be dead. Stop fighting it. You're gonna be okay. Face the void. Call it a one-way vacation to the void. Warning. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like they're people. Welcome, friends, to episode 152 of Embrace the Void, where 2 plus 2 equals 4 lights. There are 4 lights. I am your host, Aaron, and this week I'm excited to have on a fellow philosophy podcaster to discuss the intersection of culture war and criminal justice reform. So let's get abolishing. All life ends in death, which we, as a species, are cursed with knowing, resulting in... something... My guest this week is Barry Lamb, host of the Hi-Fi Nation podcast. Barry, would you like to say hi to the void? Hello, void. This is Barry <laughs> Lamb. Uh, I make Hi-Fi Nation. I'm also a philosophy professor at Vassar College. Well, oh, all right. Uh, wonderful. Welcome. Thank you so much for uh, coming and chatting. I'm really uh, excited to do this. I, I love Hi-Fi Nation. It's a great show. Um, and I... Uh, got a really great message uh, that y'all were interested in chatting about the recent work that y'all had been doing on criminal justice, which I think is a very important issue. Uh, before we get to chatting about that a little bit, I'm curious, um, you know, Hi-Fi Nation's been going for a while now, I think, right? Maybe almost four years or something like that. Yep, this um, is the fourth year. Yeah, I'm curious how the the public philosophy game has changed for you over those four years or so. For me, it's really been one long journey because when I started the show in the fall of 2015, that's when I started making it. I recorded a so that so the show for people who aren't listeners, it's uh, it's more of a documentary type show than it is an interview or talk show. So mm-hmm. I have to go out into the field and get footage, right? I have to interview different people, do some journalism, and then cut it all together and write narration and so on. So it was a long process. And when I started, it was the fall of 2015. And so since I made the pilot episode and then the first season and then all the way to the fourth season, it's just been one long journey of trying to get funding, trying mm-hmm. to get more listeners, trying to get on a network. You know, all that stuff has panned out. But because it's just one long, one long game, it feels like it's the beginning. But I've noticed that public philosophy surrounding me has has grown quite a bit would that be your sense too yeah i think that um there's a lot of factors in play here i think the medium is quite good for philosophy and that it's there's a low sort of bar to entry so there's been a lot more i think philosophers trending in that direction um and then i think also I'm curious your thoughts about this as well, but it seems to me that in academia there is a little bit of a, there's been a relaxing. I think somewhat as the um, the changing of the guard is occurring a little bit, uh, where public philosophy material is viewed as something of value, um, and so people can can make that part of their um, philosophical projects of worth and and have that be at least recognized a little bit more um, by their colleagues. Do you feel like that's that's true as well? 
I hope that's true. I don't know how much it's true. I, <laughs> it might I'll, be wishful I'll believe, thinking. I'll believe that it's true when somebody uh, gets hired mm-hmm. and part of their job is to do public philosophy. I mm. will think that's true when um, someone gets promoted on the basis of how good their public philosophy is. As far as I see, there's been a lot of ground up, you know, sort of um, mm-hmm. gr- ground up, like younger people, not just younger people, but other people too, who are doing it, but it's not counting in the sense of what it's supposed to count it in, um, in academia. So once mm-hmm. it starts counting, then I'll be a little bit more, um, <laughs> I'll be a little more bullish on, on, on public philosophy. But given, but, but that being said, given that, you know, people who have been guests on Hi-Fi Nation have started their own shows and some mm-hmm. of them are older prominent philosophers. So it's kind of like, oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah, I do think it is switching a little bit in that way. And I guess I would like to see, you know, a lot more emphasis on the public facing side of philosophy. Like, I think we've we've put a lot of energy into the publishing side, and a lot of that material doesn't make it out into the world very much. And so I do think there's a lot of value in maybe shifting from publisher parish to podcaster parish or something like that, and have people actually get a little bit of credit for uh, doing that kind of work as part of their, their tenure track or something like that. Yeah, so, I mean, I mean, yeah. I envisioned the show even from the outset as not something that I was going to just make myself, but mm-hmm. a style of a style of doing public philosophy, which is like you go out into the world, you find something that's happening. For this season, it's the criminal justice system, right? And there's a lot of right. stories in the criminal justice system. But yeah, it would be terrible stories. timing on that. <laughs> nothing, yeah, right. nothing going on right now. I, you know, when when it was when I started release, it was all COVID. I didn't think people. Mm-hmm. Care about criminal justice, and then and then to do the kind of work that I do with philosophy on the show. I didn't think of it as just my project. Of course, it had to start out as my project. But I was hoping that you know, in four years' time, after I've established some success with the show, philosophers, journalists, anybody, students, graduate students would think, you know, what I don't want to start my own show because that's just a lot to do. But I would contribute a piece, mm-hmm. an episode. You know, because I'm thinking about this kind of work and I want to talk to these kinds of people and I want to do it. And I'll, I would be ecstatic if that show just slowly transformed into that where I could make, you know, only mm-hmm. a few things a year, but the show would have, you know, 10, 15, 20 episodes a year where there was contributed by people. And then it would count as a publication for them because mm-hmm. the amount of work that you put into it is at least as much as a publication for each episode. And then they would enjoy it. They would learn new skills that they would like. And then it would just feel better rather than you sitting at your desk writing your latest philosophy paper. You're actually talking to judges and prosecutors or people in medicine or whatever area Mm -hmm. of philosophy that you work in. I would love my show to turn into that. Yeah, that sitting there and writing stuff can be brutal, and it, it, that that feeling of interface I do think um, is valuable. And so I guess this would be like Hi-Fi Nation with an emphasis on the nation part of things. Um, and that's that's interesting that you describe that that track that like that's your the trajectory that you'd like to see it get onto. Um, I'm curious how. You know, we've been doing ETV for almost 150 episodes now. You know, how has your experience over those four years, has how much has it changed in terms of the programming? Do you feel like there have been things that worked um, that you or things that didn't work really that you just like dropped or had to phase out? Have you gone through like substantial overhauls, do you feel like in some ways? Or is it really just the tightening up of that that format of um, sort of journalist slash philosophy? I 
don't know if I've had that much time to reflect Mm -hmm. on, I mean, I know episode by episode, I know which ones are better and which ones aren't. And generally the (laughs) ones that are better are the ones that I have more time doing. Um, You know, there are constraints, like very specific technical constraints. Like I think that anything more than four voices an episode is just too much to have to edit uh, and to structure into something coherent. Uh, I tried doing an episode that was more of like a, a quick shoot, 10 minutes, four different people, four different views about different topics. And let's see how that works. And I don't know how well that worked, you know, rather than one single episode on one subject matter. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, a, there's a lot to think about because because it's such a young form. You know, mm-hmm. you, you're you're a philosopher. There's Mm-hmm. There's there's no nonfiction narrative philosophy that just doesn't exist. Philosophy is argumentative, right? It's mm-hmm. the philosophy mm-hmm. is the form of thesis, counterexample, or you know, one kind of philosophy is. Sure. And there there isn't there isn't a lot of you know you might have the occasional contact with the world in something you describe that's not a thought experiment but something that actually happened. But that's really you know it's rare, but it it, it plays only an instrumental role in the philosophy that you produce. And so because it's such a young day, I don't, I don't know what the possibilities are. There are there could be people who are really talented nonfiction writers that are also mm-hmm. philosophers and the things that they produce might be just this, a beautiful piece of writing. Uh, that's not where my talents lie. I don't think so. It's not like I can produce an, a really artful piece of nonfiction writing that is mm-hmm. also philosophical. Things that I do are I, I do pretty straight down the line journalistic stuff plus philosophy, if that makes sense. But I would I would like things that are more ambitious. I'd like to see what they're like. I tried doing that. You know, Nick Riggle did some stuff mm-hmm. on my show where he had mm-hmm. what, you know, he tries to be a, a much more artful writer. And I tried to integrate what he what he did with with a story. Um I that's something that I still have to work on. Yeah. Well, I think you're right that uh, for a large period of time, at least, that kind of philosophy has been given sort of short shrift, that the, the analytic method is, like you were saying, argument and objection, and the sort of literary side of philosophy has often gotten sort of shunted off into, um, you know, uh, the continentals, right, or phenomenologists, or sort of the non-traditional styles or something. Um, but I do, I do agree that I think there is a lot of value in narrative philosophy as a uh, teaching method, as a communication method. Um, so since you, since your show isn't just guests like my show, and therefore you can't, you don't have to feel guilty about saying what your favorites are because that would be to tip your hand towards one of the people over the other. Are there any shows? Shows that it's not, as, it's not as cruel a question I feel like to ask. Is there like one or two shows that for you like really hit home? Felt like you you nailed what you were going for there. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I have I definitely have favorites. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say the first, the very first episode, even though it might not be the cleanest, most professional thing because it was the first thing I released, was is always one of my favorites. And this is the episode about the wishes of the dead, and mm-hmm. I covered the um, Milt, uh, Milton Hershey estate. Um, and the will of Milton Hershey. I liked that episode, very first episode of season one. I really liked the fourth episode of season one, which is called The Name of God, where I mm-hmm. covered Larisha Hawkins' story about getting fired. Well, she wasn't fired. There was a mutual 
hmm? mutual agreement of um, whatever Gwyneth Paltrow called it, decoupling <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, from her job for saying that Christians and Muslims worship the same God. Um, more recently, um, I really liked the second episode of re- season three, which was about the use of predictive algorithms in pretrial detention. Mm, um, yeah, I really, I really liked that episode. This season is still, it's not over yet. I have one episode to go. So when I look back, I'll probably, I, I really liked making the solitary confinement episode this season, mm-hmm. not least of which it was challenging because uh, Lisa Gunther, who is the philosopher featured in that episode, is a continental philosopher. And and I don't, I haven't featured many people who write in the continental tradition. Mm-hmm. And it's so new to me that I had to figure out how to integrate her work mm-hmm. and how to understand it because it's it's not something that I know much about. So I would say those. Yeah, those all sound great. And that, yeah, that definitely is a rabbit hole uh, in itself. And the algorithm one, which uh, I love doing the AI ethics kinds of things. Um, but I did want to talk to you primarily about uh, what you're mentioning there, your most recent season about criminal justice reform. Um, and I'm curious, what what made you want to do a season about criminal justice reform if it wasn't, you know, that people were already, the people weren't already in the streets yet when you started planning that? Was there something, though, that radicalized you in particular uh do you feel like something um about these particular issues felt very salient to you right now or what what was driving this this question for you so many different things one thing was that i wanted to do a series an entire series on a single institution period Mm -hmm. and to look at all of the different philosophical issues in that institution now there's so only a few institutions that come to mind, right? Medicine is one of them. There's a lot mm-hmm. of philosophical issues in medicine. There's a lot of philosophical issues in criminal justice. There's probably a lot of philosophical issues. And I'm, it's escaping me, right? So I've done war quite mm-hmm. a bit, actually. There's, I think I may have four episodes on various aspects of war. But criminal justice was such an easy choice because there are so many institutions and I really got into interested in the idea that there are stages to it, right? Mm-hmm. There's drafting criminal laws, there's policing, there's prosecution, there's judges and sentencing, right? Trials, mm-hmm. there's there is, there's actually being in the prisons, and then there's what happens to you after you're out. Each of those stages has there, there are different things that affect people, right? And um, different ways of looking at what affects people, right? The state individuals mm-hmm. you know there's policing there's there's so much surrounding it that i wanted to do an institution i wanted to talk about different stages of it um so criminal justice was very natural then there's the personal interest that i have uh i grew up in la in the 90s you know i've okay. lived through the la riots i was a wannabe street kid when i was a kid right so i you know petty crime things like that were, mm-hmm. were actually a part of my life Okay. 13, 14 years old. And then more recently, as an adult, you know, it's hard to say that I was not affected by all of the events that are leading up to now, you know, Ferguson, Eric Garner, Mm -hmm. um, things like that. I mean, they, they affect, they affected me. And I have wanted to, you know, if you look at my grant applications, even in the middle of the very first season, I was pitching this season. The grant mm-hmm. granting agencies and you know you get rejected many times before you get accepted so ultimately it was the whiting foundation that accepted it last year so 
you know, I was able to make it into season four. So mm -hmm. it, it was all of those factors. And then fi the final uh, personal philosophical motivation um, was that I want to get to the bottom of this human tendency towards punishment of any sort, um, personal punishment, institutional punishment, um, the relationship between these institutions of violence. So military mm -hmm. effect uh, interested me, but you know, policing, prosecutors, prisons. I have friends who are public defenders. One of my oldest friends, college roommate of mine is a public defender. And I talked to her about this kind of stuff. And um, they, I, I wanted to get to the bottom of it, even for my own sake. I need to figure out what I think about it. Do you feel like you've made any progress through your research? Do you feel like you have a better grasp on what is driving the human desire for punishment in this kind of way or how it ought to be incorporated into our society? I do. I am not, like with any other issue, philosophical issue, I don't have a settled view, even after mm -hmm. having thought about it for, you know, in depth and talking to a lot of people over the last two years about this. I still don't have a settled view. Um, I'm convinced that the drive towards punishment, I'm not going to be saying anything new, but it's definitely related to the same tendencies we have towards uh, revenge. Like mm -hmm. It's clearly related to revenge. Retribution is related to revenge, uh, to payback. It's a very basic tendency that doesn't have any other justification besides it's being basic. So if you're going to justify retribution, you can't justify it on the grounds that it's good for other reasons, because that's mm. just not retributivism anymore. Okay. Right. Uh -huh. If right. you're going to say it's good, then you're because, just a consequentialist. <laughs> yeah, that's right. For various social goods, you got to say it's intrinsically good for its own purposes. Um, so it's, it's, so it's a very basic feature. Um, mm -hmm. We know that it's a feature that is, so we know, I know, a lot of us know that it's a feature that's hard to contain. So there are a lot of people who are retributivists who believe very strongly in retributivism, but constrain it with principles of pro proportionality. Right? Mm -hmm. The amount of punishment that you get should be reflected of how much you deserve and no more, no more. But we mm -hmm. know that that's very hard to contain that the, the retributive impulse is right. one of the hardest impulses to contain both in public policy and in personal interactions. Do you, right? it's, yeah. 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 Do you think that we should be trying to restrain it? Do you feel like, well, or, or let me ask this another slightly different way. Um, do you think that some people deserve to be punished in the retributive sense? At the end of my two years, I started out, very much thinking that it's one of those unjustified, unfortunate features of the reptilian human brain. Mm -hmm. And that there's no sense in which a morally enlightened person would feel a retributive tendency. That's how I came to it, right? I mm -hmm. came to it this way. But in the, of course, in the process of the entire season, you talk to a lot of people who are retributivists, right? And mm -hmm. they tell you things about and, and they make their arguments. Uh, I am not, I still believe what I believed at the outset. And that what I believed at the outset wasn't completely uninformed. I had at least read the philosophy about this. What I didn't do was engage myself in the actual institutions of punishment yet that I subsequently have for this season, right? 
talk mm-hmm. to cops and the incarcerated and prosecutors and all that. After all of that, I think I still believe that there's no sense in which it's a moral good or morally mm-hmm. right to engage in the purposeful infliction of harm on individuals solely as payback for the harm that they've done to others, right? mm, which is just the definition of retributivism. I, yeah. I, I, I think I still believe that. Um, I was curious the way you were setting it up. I had the impression you might be going towards a like, but now I think there really is something to, um, you know, like had you, were there any arguments on the retributivist side of things that at least gave you pause that like anything short, or is it just like you see a horrible enough story that for a minute, like you're overcome by the feeling of, no, I would really just like to see that particular person punished. No, no, no. I mean, I have that tendency and it might be stronger than a lot of people who call themselves non-retributive. Mm-hmm. I have to push that tendency down. There are a set of like, let's look at it this way, right? So suppose you're, you know, outraged by the the killing of George Floyd, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, it's easy not to be a retributivist when you think that the state has targeted the wrong bad guys. But when you see, but everybody thinks that there is a set of the right bad guys. And you think mm-hmm. the officer that killed George Floyd is one of them. You're going to be outraged. And we were outraged when it didn't look like the criminal justice system was going to punish that person in the criminal mm-hmm. justice way. That's mm-hmm. why there's a call for his arrest, his prosecution and his jailing. And I, I think of that as retributive. And I think I have a very strong inclination towards retributive punishment by my gut, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and when it, when it's the right bad guys, right? And I don't think it's the right bad guys are people who are dealing drugs or kids or anything like that. But I think about, I, I think that when I think of particularly violent cops inflicting their power over people, I think that when there are, you know, people who are in power, mm-hmm. <laughs> who are using their power to ride roughshod over the rights of minorities and, and and so on. I mean, I, I think that I, I very strongly think that, right. And the people who are anti-retributivists about, you know, people convicted of drug crimes and so on, uh, I think do struggle with that, you know, when mm-hmm. it comes to um, individuals in power. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they don't, I think, I think they try to be consistent. Like I think criminal justice reformers who are writing about this, uh, and are in the weeds. They're, they're actual people who are public defenders and so on. Try their very best to be consistent about this, to be not punishing towards the um, Harvey Weinsteins of the world, in mm-hmm. addition to not being punished, punishing towards you know the kid who's picked up for a joint in the city, something like that. But I have just as strong as an inclination to see the purposeful infliction of harm uh-huh. On the people I deem to be the right bad guys. And so because I had that strong inclination, I wanted to see if there were good arguments in favor of it. And mm-hmm. the people who are retributivists and academics who are retributivists, they, you know, they're just like everything in philosophy, they have their reasons, mm-hmm. right? And they have some pretty good ones. And listening to them, you know, I don't agree or disagree. I think that their reasons worth considering. So I've tempered my view in the sense that I initially was pretty anti-retributive. I still consider myself to be. 
I think that it's a better, um, you'll have a better criminal justice system if you take all of the retributive components out of it. I think we're at a place that we can do that. Mm -hmm. I think the world would be better without that. Um, but the people who defend retributive justice have a point. I'm not mm -hmm. going to say that that's the system that I would prefer, but they have a point. Uh, I'm curious. This is a topic that comes up often on this show. And I think it was one that y'all wandered into on Hi-Fi Nation when you were talking about uh, criminal responsibility. Do, do, do your feelings about this issue of uh, retribution and punishment, do they have anything to do in your mind with um, questions around free will or moral luck or the control that people had? Do you feel drawn away from that punishment model because you think that Partly, you think that ultimately people aren't um, responsible for their actions in the kind of way that would justify, you know, genuine retribution? Or do you think that people are in control, but it's still not worth punishing them? Or it's still not, um, you know, ultimately a net good to punish them if you, unless you have a good other reason to do so? You know, this is another one of those areas where I got, I have to plead that I don't have strong views about because mm, okay. I teach it. So I, you know, I teach mm -hmm. free will and responsibility and I talk to, you know, Greg Caruso um, mm -hmm. really helped in, inspire the season too. I talked to him a long time ago and he's going to be featured on the last episode. And he's a philosopher who argues that, you know, the absence of free will is the reason why we should retract retributive justice and the use of retributive justice. I am, I don't have strong views about this first and foremost, because uh, nobody who's a retributivist is that I've spoken to is a retributivist on the grounds that they have very strong views that, you know, something like mm -hmm. libertarian free will is mm -hmm. something humans have. It's be it's because they're compatibilists, right? And so then uh -huh. you have to get into, you know, compatibilism versus incompatibilism in order to start engaging with them about the issue of moral responsibility. So that's the first thing. Mm -hmm. The second thing is I think everybody should accept the fact that the kind of agency that, sorry, let's put it this another way. Mm -hmm. The kind of people that are fully free seems to be shrinking the more and more we learn about human beings. I think we just mm -hmm. have to accept that as a fact, right? Like the more yeah. you learn about, you know, you know, it didn't used to be that, the case that we knew about, you know, insanity pleas or like insanity or how mental health worked and so on. And we've, we're learning more and more about addiction, right? We're learning more and more about the kind of things that diminish human agency so much so that we at least give, we at least consider it uh, a mitigating circumstance in sentencing, which is another mm -hmm. way of saying that people are less responsible for the things that we thought they were all fully responsible for in the past, right? So mm -hmm. I think that the more, the, the more we learn, the more we're going to think that people don't have as much agency with respect to very specific things than they did before. I think that we should just accept that as a fact. Does it mean that the people who are free will skeptics have been right all along? That it turns out that all of the things we do, we don't have any agency with respect to? I don't mm -hmm. know. I, I honestly don't know. I've been teaching you know, free will and moral responsibility for a decade now. And I just I am just not sure when I listen to compatibilist compatibilist talk. You know, a lot of people think, okay, this is an empirical issue. I don't know what empirical difference the world is supposed to have to show me that free will does or does not exist. I just really, I, do, I just can't 
get I don't know what it's supposed to look like for the mm-hmm. world to to be to be you know to look just like I mean, right I mean I don't I'm not being Yeah, clear I'm not here, sure right? what the just, observer yeah. you know I mean I think you're right that like there there is a challenge that can be raised here that like there would be no observable difference in the world externally if you if it were the case that some individuals had free will in the libertarian sense and other ones d- didn't right no, it's that's sort right. of like that's right, right like, like a philosophical zombie problem for free yeah. will and it's supposed mm-hmm. to be an empirical issue at least the way that greg caruso talks about it. it's supposed to be an empirical yeah. issue evidence from neuroscience is supposed to be evidence that we don't have free will and if it's supposed to be that then you're going to have to you're going to be able to point out you know what observable difference they're supposed to be that we can find. And I, I, I yeah. I'm and I guess this is why my, sure. my anti free will arguments tend towards the conceptual and away from the empirical for these reasons that like, yeah, I think you're, you know, it isn't going to be like you can build a machine to prove that somebody has free will or not. That's just not the way it works. I do think there are good arguments for, you know, around the nature, like um the more of the like Nagel moral luck kind of arguments is stuff that I always climb up on when I'm talking about these issues. And I think that does raise serious challenges for moral responsibility. But like, it's not that the empirical information has proven the case. It's more like the empirical information is unsurprising. Um, um, given the nature of of the situation itself, I guess. Yeah, and then the the, the last thing I would say that kind of tempers mm-hmm. the my, my own tendency to think that the free will issue is the issue on which criminal justice and criminal justice reform and retributivism turns is that I just I'm just very skeptical that this question that is if it's a conceptual question that has been with us for you know two thousand years you know, mm-hmm. that religious apologists have thought about for a long time and scientists think about for a long time. That's the thing on which whether or not we're going to be really punishing in the law turns. Like, like I, I just have a very, I have very strong doubts that that's the issue on which it turns, whether or not we should be incarcerating people for life or mm-hmm. putting them to death mm-hmm. or, or having the system that we currently have. Like, does it really yeah. turn on the settling of that particular question? I, I have my doubts. I'm not saying that it's not. I'm, I'm That's just a good saying point. I have my doubts. Well, yeah, I guess I, what I would say is it's a combination of things. It's that plus the basic understanding about the nature of suffering and like the suffering that's caused by these kind of retributive models and and basically arguing that it's unnecessary suffering in various kinds of ways um like i think if you didn't have that part of it in there then there would be less of a a motivation to be worried about pushing away from the retributive model but if you you know if you do buy in that the retributive model is involving unnecessary amounts of suffering in theory i think the moral luck arguments can help sort of break loose the part of us that is very resistant to the idea that that like less punishment is acceptable or that like equity can involve uh you know a, a different kind of rehabilitative model rather than a, a retributive kind of model. Um, so it's, it, it's more that it's not like this. Sh- I think you're right. I think that's a good point that it shouldn't be the only thing dr- driving our reasoning here. Um, but I do think it's something that can sort of grease the wheels of a shift towards a more progressive social justice model. No, that's right. I mean, I, I think about this all the time in philosophy when we have incredibly high handed ways mm-hmm. of responding to problems you know it's kind of like like um you know it's a it's, it's a joke i kind of tell in my classes right like if you were cross-examining a witness 
Mm-hmm. And the best you can do is Cartesian skepticism, then you've lost. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. And I, and I, right. and I, and, and I started to think that about this issue of criminal justice. I mean, like, yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I sympathize with people like Greg Caruso. I mean, I think that, um, I think it'll, it might very well turn out that what we thought of as a libertarian free will is just not something that human beings have. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, yeah, that's going to be the thing that you're going to use as a premise to reform, you know, the overly punitive criminal justice system. To me, it, at, you know, my I had a reaction which was that's like saying, you know, I don't think your your eyewitness is any good because they could have dreamt the whole thing. You know, like mm-hmm. to me, that sometimes it sounds just like that. <laughs> so, do you think a better motivator here would be something more like a social justice model that says that that we should reform this thing not because of abstract stuff about free will but because of contract you know concrete things about systemic inequality or something like that no no, not necessarily i mean it's definitely Mm -hmm. that but but there are (laughs) other ways in that that Mm -hmm. are philosophical ways in. it's not just about systemic inequalities right so Mm -hmm. there are arguments to the effect of okay you know Libertarian free will, that goes to whether we can blame anybody at all, even with respect to, even even morally, right? Not even in the criminal mm-hmm. justice system, but even morally. And it's a broad, wide-ranging argument undermining the way that we um, blame people or hold people responsible. And so it applies mm-hmm. to criminal justice because it applies everywhere. But then there are other arguments to the effect of there are conditions under which the state is permitted to punish. Mm-hmm. And even if punishment is legitimate, uh, as something that human beings can do to each other, it's not legitimate for the state as an aim of the state. And so there are arguments to that effect, right? What are the legitimate aims of the state? And there's a couple of different arguments, right? One argument <laughs> is the legitimate aim of the state is not to uh, enact every single reactive emotion that humans have, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's so one argument is like it's only forward looking and protective. Right? Okay, right. It's not or, or the liberal model of right, right. it's only things right. that harm other people. Yeah, something like that. Or it mm-hmm. could be something like this. Um, the state in principle could have a ju- could, could justifiably punish individuals. It's just that they have to satisfy conditions of distributive justice before they do that. Mm-hmm. And it could be that. Right. It could be it could be the state has to either earn the right or maintain the right. Uh, to punish by making it making the conditions that uh, make wrongdoing uh, mm-hmm. right not uh, right. attractive. Or this something would be a like kind that. of Rawlsian model, right? If you're That's right. if you're like raising that. up the worst off and everyone is sufficiently well off, then you eliminate the the poverty as a as an explanation or a necessity justifications for crime, um, and thereby fulfill the the state's side of the social contract and, and can then can then enact the social contract on others when they fail to fail to uphold their end of the bargain. That's right. There, and then there are things, then there are philosophical considerations that mm-hmm. play the retributivist game, which mm-hmm. is, you know, proportionality. Let's talk about proportionality. Let's talk about how to make particular wrongs proportion, like particular punishments proportioned to wrongs. And here the, retributivists can accept and acknowledge all of the crazy difficulties that come with talking about what a right punishment is supposed to be for, you know, Mm -hmm. um, indecent exposure 
you know, or, or um, disorderly conduct or whatever. Right. And, and there are so many, you know, substantive problems about how you assign punishments Mm-hmm. Right. Even if you think that in principle there's a right for the for the state to do this, you can say, well, you know, the the easy case is uh, murder, uh, <laughs> because that's the one that people have talked about for the longest time. Because that's going to range from something, you know, first degree murder. That's going to range from something like thirty years to life to death. You know, <laughs> right? And then you're trying to make everything else proportional re- relative to that. And then right. we we know that there's just how do you do that right Right. and then you have questions about like is it even good to be using life in prison for someone who committed murder because life in prison could constitute sort of cruel and unusual punishment and um, that's right that's right and you could play and so i think that when i talk to retributivists for this whole season they locate the primary problems with the justice system Mm -hmm. as being disproportionate as hmm. well as criminalizing things that are not intrinsic moral wrongs, mm-hmm. right? right? And so they're going to rest their arguments as which I which I think is a very, um, I don't mean this in any pejorative way, but I think it's a very American way of looking at it. Hmm. Right? Um, well, what's gone wrong in American criminal justice is not something radical like we shouldn't we're punishing people when we ought not to be, right? Um, but rather. We're overly, we're doing it too much. Like we've taken things too far. It's like the thing, <laughs> taking things too far way of looking at things, right? We've just like passed laws that we shouldn't have passed. And we've done things, we've imprisoned people for too long. But basically the values that it expresses are right. right? right. I think that's a, you know, I don't mean, I honestly, I don't mean it pejoratively. I mean, it's, no, a, it's a, the a standard, sort of yeah. American way because Norwegians don't look at it this way. And like certain other countries don't look at it that way. They think the values are all wrong. Right. Whereas we like the, you know, our values are always right because we're America and we just, we go big on things a little bit sometimes because we're yeah, Americans. That's right. right? That's right. Um, but like, no, I totally agree with you that, that yeah, it is a, so you would say that we are in a, we have a fundamentally unjust criminal justice system at the, at the moment. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, so let me ask you about that because I want I want to tie this a little bit to current event stuff that's going on. Um, there's been sort of pushback to the pushback with the protests going on right now. I've seen folks talking about how you know these protests are um, really the result of things like critical studies or uh, social justice kind of run amok, uh, evergreen gone global kinds of concerns. Um, and I'm curious what you would say to those critiques of these these movements do you feel like that these protests are downstream of culture war do you feel like they're downstream of of like genuine social justice debates like uh police brutality and the criminal justice system what is your what is your read on this situation i think they're downstream of the culture war if people make them about that right Mm -hmm. um and i think people who make them about that are um just completely divorced from the empirical reality of what's going on. So, so let's, let let me, let me talk about what I mean by that. Right. So I Mm -hmm. think there is, and there should be agreement about the over-militarization of policing and policing practices. And by that, Mm -hmm. I mean the literal stuff that police use to police. I'm talking about no knock warrants. I'm talking about, um, uh, no knock raids. I'm talking about the use of assault weapons, the overuse of shooting as a solution to problems, things like that. I think mm-hmm. it's incontrovertible 
that if you look comparatively between the U.S. and all of its peer countries in Western Europe and Japan and, and so on, that police are much more violent here than they are in these other countries, even other countries that have arms. Right? Mm-hmm. So I think that there, that's incontrovertible. In, in, in now, there's a dispute. The, it's a cultural war dispute when, about whether that unique violence is targeted at Black American, particular Black American men. Mm-hmm. And now I think the data is pretty clear there that it's definitely disproportionately on Black American men. And there are people who are fighting the culture war who might think, oh, well, you're ignoring the white Americans who mm-hmm. are the victims of over-militarized police. Okay, hopefully, right, um, that's what they're concerned about, that we're overlooking white victims of mm-hmm. police violence. And if that's true, then at least we can agree at least we are unified in trying to solve the problem of police militarism, right? Mm-hmm. But if the culture war debate is about that it's not, there is no problem of over-militarization of police, mm-hmm. right? That it's neither a problem for Black Americans or white Americans, then I think you're completely divorced from the empirical reality. And hopefully the people who think, who are fighting the culture war, who think it's only a problem for Black Americans and the people who think that it's not a uh, a problem for black or white Americans, hopefully they're just fringe elements because they're completely divorced from the reality. And then, then they're just going to argue with each other over Twitter while all of us reasonable people try to change policy. Hopefully it's that. But, you know, yeah, <laughs> it's go really ahead. I mean, it's something to be hopeful about. I I mean, I see maybe it is because I argue with people on Twitter and that's just the, the, the problem that I'm dealing with here. But um you know, a lot of times in these arguments, so for example, you keep saying you feel like the empirical data leans towards this one perspective. I agree with you, right? But I'm also cognizant that for a lot of folks, they push back on the empirical data by saying, you know, this data is, it, it's flawed in a variety, or, well, so they'll, they'll push back by saying, well, look at, like you were saying, how many, you know, non-white people are, are being killed, uh, but also push back with things like um, black-on-black crime. Um, they, they'll try to, sort of raise doubts and and here's what i wanted to get at right so one one abstract philosophical question that often comes up in all of this is when you try to look at when you try to point to data that shows that there's a problem you end up having to point to inequality of outcome right you have to point and say you know these people are being policed at a disproportionate amount uh for you know like drugs for example right we know that people of color do drugs at maybe a slightly less rate but are disproportionately picked up for drug use as an example but you're still talking about a quality of outcome there. And a lot of folks who I think are critical of the social justice position will say appeals to a quality of outcome are problematic because you don't you're, you're, you're sort of cheating if you infer from unequal outcomes that it is the result of racial uh, oppression or something like that, right? It might just be the case that it like is pure luck or something that is causing this, or it might be the case that there is some other factor in play here uh, that is driving these disparate outcomes and that you can't really fully weed out that alternative possibility is the way that some of them will argue. And therefore you don't have the empirical leg to stand on that, that you're referring to here. How do you, did you come across those kinds of objections when you were doing this um this particular season on criminal justice and do you what are your thoughts on how how to respond to an objection like that not really i didn't really come okay. across that um 
Look, sociological and psychological theses are going to be subject to increasingly uh, radical forms of skeptical doubt. Mm -hmm. You're talking about unseeable forces that are affecting um, things that you can see. Right? Mm -hmm. And people deny about the things you can see. Like they deny data. That's fine. Like, you know, data collection is not perfect in this area. We all know that. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, but but as soon as you have something that's, you know, that you're postulating that it's an invisible force that's going to be responsible, mm -hmm. yeah, you're going to have increasingly skeptical concerns about it. Right. I mean, I don't think people who um, are fighting the culture wars are telling us we could have dreamt the data. I don't think they're going that far, right? mm -hmm. but they're definitely saying that um, there are all kinds of hidden variables that might explain it. They think those things are true, mm -hmm. but the way that they're going to engage in the debate with you is that they're going to say, but you can't rule out that they're false. Mm -hmm. right? Well, as somebody right. who studied epistemology and philosophy of science for a long time, like I think the right reaction is that, no, we can't. Right? We can't rule it out. If especially mm -hmm. the criteria for what you mean by ruling out, right, is got to is whatever it is your epistemological criteria, which is pretty high if you're fighting a culture war. It's kind of like you know a lot of things. You have to meet the standards of physics if you're going to try to establish an hypothesis, right? Mm -hmm. That's something like racism and racial oppression is responsible for the outcomes of of you know policing in America. The way I see it, look, look, the, my response is not going to be as radical as people who are fighting in the culture war, right? My response is, I think that there are a multitude of effects, right? Sorry, mm -hmm. causes mm -hmm. for the effect that we see, right? And I think the right thing to dispute is the effect sizes of each of those causes, mm -hmm. right? rather than it's this versus that, right? And I think the culture wars, you know, um, mask that. Right. What is the effect size of black on black violence on the fact that black people are killed at higher rates than white people rates, not totals, right? Rates mm -hmm. by the police, as opposed mm -hmm. to right, racial structures and policing, as opposed to the individual attitudes of police officers. Mm -hmm. right? I don't think one of these is the explanation in all of the cases. It can't be, right? I think that in different cases, different elements of this affect size, like the the cause, mm -hmm. right? The, right? Of, you know, I think that, and I don't think we know what the effect sizes are of each of these elements, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, um, I certainly think it's challenging. Yeah, you mentioned in right. there the lowering, well, well, at least, you know, treat use of different epistemic standards, right? The idea that research that could be done on these kinds of questions could be, you know, sufficiently rigorous and valuable without meeting maybe the epistemic standards of something like physics. Um, do you, do you think that it is good to have those kinds of different epistemic standards here? And do you feel like we should adopt uh, a sort of more pragmatic standard that uh, would sort of lead us to believe that based on the data that we have currently, that there are sort of systemic racial problems, for example, even if, like you say, um, you know, we still haven't been able to fully weed out every confounding variable. It's the different standards are unavoidable. It's just mm -hmm. unavoidable that you're, you're not going to have the standards of physics. You can't even have the standards of physics for 
other what people call hard sciences. You can't have the standards of physics in the medical sciences, not even close. Right? You, you can't have, have the standards of physics in molecular biology, and yet not even all of physics, right? Um, and you're you like just the way you know scientific methodology, insofar as there's a univocal thing that we call it, it's call that. Um, it's going to vary according mm-hmm. to you know lots of different things, right? Ideally, would it would it be should it be the case that um, we have the same really really high standards before we accept hypotheses about the effects like the the causes of police violence in America as it is you know whatever it is something in quantum mechanics I don't mm-hmm. know it's just that it turns out I don't know if ideally I would I'd like that it just turns out that when it comes to things like police violence you know we're, we're we need to have some kind of intervention, mm-hmm. right? We need to have an intervention there. And um, and because we need to have an intervention, we're going to need to come up with some conclusion. And right mm-hmm. now it looks like we're going to have to have some conclusion pretty quickly. Um, <laughs> I, I, I don't have any problems with a lot of the standards. You know, like I have a lot of problems with standards in social science. But I mean, for this particular issue, uh-huh. Because there's so much comparative data, and because we know that you know the ways in which America is similar to Canada and way it's different from Canada or Norway or Germany or Japan or or whatever, and um, mm-hmm. or you know Honduras, I think that we, I think I think there are some things that even if this doesn't reach the standard of physics, whatever side you're on the culture war on, you should accept, which is that there is a problem of police violence. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right? Yeah. Is it uniquely targeted towards Black Americans? No, it's not uniquely targeted towards Black Americans. And then we're arguing about um, disproportionate and what the cause of the disproportionate stuff is, right? Okay. Yeah. If you're at that stage of the argument, we can at least accept that the problem of police militarism is something that we should solve. Okay. Should we do more than that? Um, yeah, I think so. But I'm willing to talk about what the you know what they mm-hmm. think the effect is. Um, you know, if you think it's just, oh, the effect disproportionately on Black American is completely explained by the level of crime in Black neighborhoods and uh, uniquely racist cops. If they if they say that, then I'm like, okay, that, that's what you think. Uh, I don't agree. I think that there is some effect of that. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's all of the effect. But like, you know, convince me why you think that's the sole effect as opposed sure. to some effect. But the the bigger effect is what their enemies, what they call social justice warriors say it is, which is structural features of American policing. Mm-hmm. Right? So, I, I mean, I'm willing, look, I'm willing to have that debate, but if they're going to deny the problem of police militarism, then I don't think we can have a debate because I think that there's facts like that are, mm-hmm. uh, that's really divorced from empirical reality. Okay. I think that's very well put. So before we run out of time here, I'm curious, are there issues in the criminal justice reform world in the research that you were doing that you came across that you feel like don't get much attention? They're not the sexy issues of criminal justice reform, um, but you wish were getting a lot more attention. Is there anything in particular that like you would love to see people doing more specials on, for example? Uh, Yeah, you know, I, you know, I'm glad we had this conversation because Mm. um, so little of my series has been on the question of race, not Mm -hmm. because I don't have opinions or don't think about it. It's because I think other people do it much better than I do. Mm. Um, So, 
very little of it is about race. Some, you know, maybe half an episode um, and then sprinklings of here and there. Really what happened was as I was working on the series, the issues that arose that ended up interesting me all seemed to coalesce around this one topic that I don't think philosophers or people outside of philosophy talk about very much. And the more I think about it, I didn't say in the series, this is what the series is about, but it turns out that this is what the series was about. And that's the issue of discretion, right? Hmm. The issue of discretion being the issue of um, individual decision-making when the law permits, uh, but doesn't require you to do certain things. What do I, so what are examples of that? Um, Police discretion, mm-hmm. prosecutorial right. discretion, judicial mm-hmm. discretion in sentencing, the discretion that the Department of Corrections has in determining what they do with the prisoner, right? Um, and like it turned out, like as I was making all of these episodes, that that's what the series was about, right? Um, that's interesting. Right? So it was so, about, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Well, no, so I'm just curious. Like you're saying all of this about discretion, and I feel like a lot of normal human beings who aren't philosophers are probably thinking, oh, discretion, great. And I'm thinking, so was your takeaway that discretion is a good thing or a bad thing? Because to me, like discretion appears to be a very much a double-edged sword, um, and that like a lot of the harms that can come about can come about as a result of the misapplication of discretion. Yeah, it, it's it's you you can't answer whether it's a good or bad thing, right? Because okay. the, op- the opposite of discretion um, in this context, in the criminal justice context, is rule of law. Mm-hmm. That's the opposite of discretion. So rule of law is when, so let me give you an example. Should we have judges' discretion in sentencing, or should we have the law mandate what sentences individuals should serve when they right. commit a particular crime? Minimum sentencing laws kind yeah, of Yeah, minimum sentencing mm-hmm. laws, maximum sentencing laws, you know, mm-hmm. sentencing ranges, things like that. Um uh, rule of law with respect to policing. How much should police be given discretion to let people off who violate statutes, whether it's on the road or or on the street? Mm-hmm. Right? Prosecutorial discretion. They have complete discretion over whether and who they prosecute. And because 95% of cases are settled by plea bargain, the terms of the plea bargain are completely an issue of prosecutorial discretion. Something I cover in my um, series a lot. I cover a lot of prosecutorial discretion, not least of which is the use of fictional crimes, right? hmm. crimes that don't exist in the books, um, to charge people with, so oh. that you can get the right results uh, oh, <laughs> um, in terms of prison time and, and so on. Um, so there's a lot I cover. Like it turned out that that's what I was covering, and mm-hmm. I didn't go into the series thinking that I was going to cover this. I didn't even think about it. But just following my own interests, that's what the series turned out to be about, right? The 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 difference between rule of law and discretion, how it actually works and how it should work. And mm-hmm. you're right. There is no univocal answer to this. There's no mm-hmm. univocal answer as to whether or not rule of law is better than discretion. People who love the rule of law say rule of law absolutely should be the thing that like, there are philosophers who say that, right? Discretion is a flaw of a, of a system. Mm-hmm. Um, but rule of law makes for the possibility of rule of bad law. Right. Well, this, to me, this, is, 
this yeah. is, a, this is a, like a fundamental problem within ethics where, uh, you know, it's the choice between flexibility and, and kind of consistency or other virtues that, you know, forms of fairness, it seems like justice, right? These things stand in tension with each other. Um, and, you know, I lean towards flexibility, I think, but I'm... You know, it may be that I lean towards flexibility because I've lived a very privileged life. And so I feel like I come from a more permissive and forgiving place or something like that. And maybe other people who've suffered real serious injustices, right? I, maybe maybe they have a reasonable place to be coming from uh, a less um, permissive attitude where they don't want to see, um, you know, judges being allowed to engage in discretion with regard to the person who seriously harmed them. Um, so yeah, I, where do you where do you end up in all of that? I mean, I know you don't have a univocal answer, but like, um, is it like earlier where you lean away from the the punishment side of things on this as well? Well, th- so after all of the like the whole series and just mountains and mountains of material, mm-hmm. the um, it's such a mixed bag. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, discretion is by the data is definitely responsible for some of the racism we see in the system. Mm -hmm. If you algorithmically make it the case that, I mean, these are small studies, but if you algorithmically make it the case that officers let off every third person they stop, or when they see somebody violate a statute, only stopped every third person, Right, irrespective of their discretion, right? You randomize it and so forth, and then you look at people who do who use discretion in traffic stops. There's definitely a racial difference, right? Definitely is, definitely, Mm -hmm. right? Um, on the other hand, uh, I also looked at um, domestic violence and sexual assaults, uh, Mm -hmm. policing in one of my episodes, and one thing that happened in the 80s was that they decided through various forms of activism to stop using police discretion in domestic violence calls, moving to a mandatory arrest model. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, I can tell you, I mean, you might not be, maybe people can guess, but mandatory arrest was not better. than the use <laughs> It's a of different, police different kind of bad. Yeah. Right. And in fact, the, the, the racial differences in the effect of mm-hmm. mandatory policing disproportionately harmed the black community, even though it was officially a colorblind, uh, you know, procedure, mm-hmm. algorithmic procedure. This is all you do. So taking away police discretion in that case wasn't good, but giving them discretion in traffic stops seems to have racial differences. Another th- place I looked was in sentencing. So what happened mm-hmm. in 1984 with the Sentencing Reform Act is was they removed a lot of judicial discretion. They gave some, there was still some discretion, but you had to sentence within the range mandated by the federal government. Mm-hmm. And then that stopped uh, about a decade ago because of a Supreme Court ruling. And it turned out that judges were easier when they were able to exercise discretion. They mm-hmm. actually sentenced on average below the minimum that was recommended by the sentencing guidelines. Uh, but that's an average, right? You're still, you know, there's the disparity actually went up too. Do they have any right? sense so of why? Um, 
Yeah, there's a lot of complicated. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot of complicated uh-huh. literature on why. Part so, of you know more there, than it, we can cover in the time we have left, I suppose. Yeah, right? yeah. I mean, there's it's 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 fascinating stuff, and I could go into it. I, none of this made it into the series, but mm-hmm. one, you know, one of the reasons why is that on average judges are more lenient than uh, people who, in the abstract, are thinking about what people deserve for a crime. That's hmm. just true, right? Across all crimes, in it's general, counterintuitive judge- too. I feel like we, I think, yeah, we tend to well, think of judges out- as being more judgy. <laughs> yeah, no, it's actually you know you might not think that if you think um, they're sensitive to mitigating factors in person mm-hmm. more than they are sensitive to aggravating factors. Whereas in principle, aggravating, like if you just think about it a priori, you might think that aggravating factors play more of a salient feature in people's minds when they're thinking about it a priori than. I just think we also have the cultural image of the, you know, throw the book at you kind of judge. Right. But that, but here's another thing. And this one you'll, you will understand. The other uh-huh. thing is that it just turned out that the man, the, the, the guidelines were harsher on white collar crimes mm. than judges were on white. So a lot of fat, this is, this is only done with federal sentencing. And, I and see. so it turns out that a lot of the, the things that judges were easier on were white collar crimes. So it's right. like another one of those things where, you know, they, they kind of feel for the, you know, white collar. Uh, <laughs> so you could use that statistic. So somebody could hold that statistic up and say, look, this didn't work because there was more worse sentencing. And so it's bad for people of color or something like that. When the reality might've been that it was actually worse overall for uh, white people because they tend to commit more white collar crimes, for example. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a really messy thing to try to tease out what the yeah. explanation is. Um, um, but anyways, the, the point is like the dis- discretion versus rule of law, ru- like rules, the, the use of discretion versus mandating from the top mm-hmm. down. It's a, it's a, I think, obviously I think this, cause the series turned out to be about that as a, a fascinating thing that is seriously undercovered, um, amongst philosophers and reformers as well. That's great. So speaking of then, um, since we're getting close to the end, I was curious, I think one of the great things that we get to do as public philosophers is point people towards other uh, smarter people who've done more work. Um, Is there any folks who you would want to sort of signal boost in terms of the work that they've done in the criminal justice reform um, books that you feel like were the most influential for you as you were prepping this material or other sources besides books? Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, Look for are your are the people who listen to your show like a lot of philosophers? Some of them are philosophers. Some of them are just people who are interested in philosophy. Um, So feel free to you know put out any range of suggestions at this point. Yeah. Okay. So with respect to the philosophical issues, there's just so much out there about moral responsibility. You know, I you know people should read Strassen's Freedom and Resentment. People should read Mm -hmm. that. Um, I think um, Martha Nussbaum's book anger and forgiveness. It's something that I've taught before. It's just a kind of a, uh, I think a nice little characterization of people who want to take an anti-retributivist position that comes from like some kind of moral high ground about, Mm -hmm. um, about not only ratifying, but feeling the kind of attitudes that lead to retribution, retributive justice and so on. But I would like but if people are philosophers and already philosophically literate, I would mm-hmm. say follow, read the work of some of the people who are doing empirical work on these issues, who try to look at differences um, mm-hmm. and outcome, to try to test them 
both at all, at all stages, policing, prosecution. So I'll, I'll just say I, I featured some of the people I featured over this season and over the years. Lawrence Sherman, criminologist, mm-hmm. experimental criminologist. He's you know, he just won the August Vollmer Award. He's a legend in that field. And he's done a lot of very careful stuff uh, in with respect to policing. Mm-hmm. Um, Megan Stevenson is somebody who does a lot of empirical work on not just the use of algorithms, which I covered in one of my episodes last year, but about every a lot of things about misdemeanors and misdemeanor prosecution, mm-hmm. things like that. So I won't give too many too much more. So 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 th- so those two, I would say, Lawrence Sherman, Megan Stevenson, and then the, all, all the people who have been featured in the series, um, I've also linked to on the website. Okay. So so if people listen to the series and they're interested in what people have said, I've, you know, I, there's philosophers and non-philosophers alike. People talk about collateral consequences. So the rights that people are denied after they're out of prison, I've had an open whole mm-hmm. episode about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I've talked to former cops, now philosophers about their views. <laughs> so there's a lot, there's a lot of good stuff. All right. That's just so much. Um, that's, that's why I love ethics in particular is that it's, there's just so, so many rabbit holes to fall down. Um, but unfortunately, we are just about out of time and I've got to run you through the end of show torture that is required for all guests. Welcome. So we're going to do the enlightening round here. Um, I'm going to give you a list of things and you're going to tell me, are those things real or not real? Uh, okay. You can, o- you can only say real or not real. You do okay. not get to hedge. You don't have to define what real means. Um, so let me just ask you this, right? Are you ready? Sure. Go okay. Do you think that anything is real? Yes. Okay. So let's find out what's real. All right. Is the external world real? Yes. Okay. Are colors real? Yes. Phenomenal consciousness? Yes. Free will? I can't say don't know. Nope. It's yes or no. Um, I will say yes. Okay. Selves or persons? Yes. Genders? Yes. Races? No. Species? Yes. Morality? Yes. Rights? Yes knowledge yes god that's, a hard one. that's, that's my a hard, yeah god, i'm surprised yeah. that knowledge was particularly yeah. challenging there that's well, interesting. i'm an epistemologist that's okay I, okay that's, i understand i understand god or gods no society no money yes numbers Yes. Fictional characters. Yes. <laughs> Holes like a hole in the ground. Absolutely. Chairs. Yes. Sandwiches. Yes. Science. Yes. <laughs> Natural laws. Natural laws. <laughs> oh my God. The disgust in your one. voice. <laughs> yeah. Oh, natural laws. Um, I will say. Actually, I'll say no on that one. Oh, okay. Beauty. Yeah. Beauty. Oh my god. Yes. Causality. Yes. 
And finally, time. Yes. Okay, you survived. How do you feel? Good. It's it's uh, it's interesting. I didn't expect my answers to be that way. I guess I'm not a nihilist about anything. Or very you got, you were you were very much on the real side of things. You're gonna. Yeah, I don't know because, that you're gonna get to hold on to your credentials as a public yeah, philosopher well, because, with all that. <laughs> because you said not defining what real is. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I think I took as expansive as I could. But then mm-hmm. it surprised me if I was taking it that expansive. I should have said yes to everything. <laughs> yeah, it is funny where people feel like they have to draw the line. Um, for example, I think it's always amusing when somebody says that God or gods are not real, but fictional characters are real, <laughs> given that God, it seems like, is probably a fictional character. Um, right. So, But that was great, though. Thank you so much for, for this wonderful chat. Do you want to let folks know where they can find you again? Sure. Hi-Fi Nation. Uh, it's a Slate podcast. You can get it wherever you get your podcast. That's H-I-P-H-I Nation. You can go to the website also, hifination.org, where you can get all four seasons. Of course, you can get that on your podcatcher also. Mm-hmm. And then you can also email me there. Great. Well, thank you so much, Barry. This has been a lot of fun and I highly recommend folks check out Hi-Fi Nation. As always, I'd like to thank our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. Thanks to our $20 tier patrons, Jude Law's Canadian accent in Existence makes my pussy throb, blacknonbelievers.com, 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 Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman, Chad T. And thanks so much to our top tier patrons, the venerable Richard Milhouse Nixon and Dave Maslish. Really, none of this would be possible without you. If you'd like to support the show, please leave us a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. Follow us on Twitter at ETVPod. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you our bonus book club content. Most importantly, never forget, you are the void and the void is you. 